Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa. Good evening. How are you doing? Good. I see all smiles and everything going on. This is great. This is great. You're still smiling. <laughs> hmm. So it's lovely to be with you and lovely to um, talk about Dharma and hopefully uh, continue to inspire you to uh, practice diligently and earnestly. I'm going to talk a little bit tonight about uh, mindfulness and metta, uh, which you've heard some about mindfulness from Larry and um, about metta from Bhante. So uh, hopefully you'll be really mindful and metified by the time this talk is finished. So this is from the Tao. The ancient masters did not try to educate people, but kindly taught them not knowing. When they think they know the answers, people are difficult to guide. Sound familiar? When they know they don't know, people can find their own way. I like this one. If you want to learn how to govern, Avoid being clever or rich. The simplest pattern is the clearest. Content with an ordinary life, all people can be shown the way back to their own true nature. All people can be shown the way back to their own true nature. This task was put very simply and beautifully by Marcus Garvey, who said, we are going to emancipate ourselves from mental slavery because while others may free the body, none but ourselves can free the mind. That may sound familiar to you if you listen to Bob Marley. Mind is your only ruler Sovereign. He also said, do not remove the kinks from your hair, remove them from your brain. (laughs) So we want to be simple and easy. As the Taoists said, no great exploits, come and go. And the mindfulness practice uh, that Larry introduced this morning uh, 
is simple, but it's not simplistic. As a matter of fact, it's simple, and yet there is, it's grounded in complexity, which matches the nature of our lives, the nature of this mind and this body, which is what we use to practice. It's sublime and it's profound, yet it's simple in its execution, though perhaps not too easy. So how do we find wisdom? How do we discover the wisdom that is already here? How do we free our minds from mental slavery? Wisdom of the heart is discovering our capacity to rest in the seasons of gain and loss, joy and sorrow, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, blame and praise. But what what are we doing here? We are reading rediscovering that capacity in ourselves. We may remember, or we may not remember, or we may know that when we were infants, it was already there in us. We had it then, but then as life unfolds and we're reared by humans, we learn fear and anger as defenses to the onslaught of learning how to live together. Through presence or mindfulness and kindness, we begin to find that place that we already know, that is already our birthright. We may not always have it and it may come and go, but we already have it in ourselves. And it's a place of poise and rest, not a place of doing and struggling and trying to make something happen, but a place of actually knowing how to lay back. Ah, but the paradox is with that poise and rest, there is great effort. So we have many different uh, ideas about how to respond to life. And sometimes we think, well, if I kind of keep my distance, if I don't stay too close to it, somehow I'll be able to be safe. And then what comes in us is a kind of movement of indifference. We think, oh, if I don't care, then nothing can hurt me. So we back away. And that's not it either. The other is somehow if I do it right, if I do everything right and perfect, somehow the vicissitudes of life won't touch us. They won't affect us. They won't change us but they will, they always do. We know that, we are of that age. 
We're a new person every day, every moment, every experience. There's a complexity to that where there is nothing that we experience that doesn't touch us, transform us, change us in some way. We're inescapably affected by every single experience according to our relationship to it. And that's the key. It is not the experience so much, although it has some play, but what is our relationship to it? How do we know it? How do we come close to it? How, what do we do with it? So what we've been doing all day today and will deepen as the week moves on is seeing clearly how, who we are and how we relate to that experience through sitting and walking and knowing the breath. Knowing our body, our thoughts, our emotions, and the dharmic nature of experience more intimately. And that is the function of mindfulness. And as the week moves on, we will broaden our experience and move our attention to include uh, body, we've done breath today, thoughts, feelings, mind, and seeing the Dharma more fully in every experience. And this will allow us to deeply respect and discover a capacity of each one of our hearts and each one of us in our being. And what the practice is designed to do is to continue to open you more and more fully in the midst of it all. And in that opening, we begin to discover our capacity of fearlessness and deep love and compassion and centeredness, a kind of centeredness that allows us to see all of life and not put anyone, not a single being, out of our hearts, especially ourselves. And this practice not only brings us home to who we are, but begins to um, filter our seeings so that it becomes clear, the dross is filtered out of our seeing so that our seeing becomes more clear. And in that clarity, we begin to see things as they are, the more fearless we are in facing whatever it is that is happening in this moment, in this body, in this heart, in this mind. There's a fearlessness that comes and that fearlessness is what uh, filters the dross and we begin to see 
really clearly. We begin to understand more deeply the nature of things as they are. There was a wonderful Zen teacher, Zen master named Suzuki Roshi in San Francisco in the uh, 20th century who was very well respected and very well known in America. And he said this. He said, you don't really know what it means to sit in meditation until there is some great difficulty in your life. Not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love. And then you're tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital and there's nothing you can do. And finally, you take a seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows and your thoughts and your worries, and you just sit in the middle of it all. And that's the moment that you begin to understand the power of your practice. I didn't understand the depth of this or the truth of it until I experienced three events over three years. The dying process of my husband, who was a wonderful, beautiful heart and soul of a man, and the internal, my internal aftermath of his death. That was the first experience. And then the second was um, a kind of spiritual death, the death of idealism. And finally, an ankle fractured in four places with torn ligaments and crushed bones that after eight, eight months is not completely healed still. These three events feel now like a um, like heavenly messengers that were sent to me and they are definitely humbling and incredibly dharmically educational. These instructions by Ajahn Chah as well as that paragraph from Suzuki Roshi, Suzuki Roshi, sorry, were um, really great companions and guides. And Ajahn Chah, who was the teacher of Jack Cornfield, who was my teacher, was like this. He said, the great teaching of mindfulness can be summed up in one simple movement, coming back when you're lost on one side to the center and moving back when you're lost on the other to the center. Just to be here in the center of your being. Just to be here in the center of your being. That is your task as we go through this week 
And we ask you to be mindful of the body and the breath. We ask you to be mindful of the feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral that arise with the contact that you, with every contact that you have with the world. So we ask you to be mindful of thoughts and emotions. And as we ask you to be mindful of dharmas, how the dharma appears in every aspect of life if we're really looking and seeing clearly. Just to be here in the center of your being, steady as she goes. Because this discovery of this capacity of presence brings a kind of strength. And this strength is not one of fighting against, but the strength of openness. So when I broke my ankle, or when my ankle broke itself, I was lying in a hospital room in San Francisco, very far away from home. I'm from New York. And I thought, well, they're saying that it's going to be a long haul. So what can I do? What can I do? So I, uh, when I got home, I, when I got to Larry's home, <laughs> not to my home, I ordered a book called um, The Visuddhimagga, translated as The Path of Purification. Because I had never, I'd read parts of it, but I'd never read it from cover to cover. And I thought, well, 700 pages, that's about right for about three months. So I just, so I ordered it and uh, I started to read it. And I came upon um, chapter nine. Chapter nine of the Visuddhimagga. And the Visuddhimagga was written by a monk called Buddha Gosa about a thousand years after the Buddha's um, life. And it's essentially, he essentially took all of the teachings of the Buddha and uh, restructured re, uh, them and, tran- and interpreted them. Uh, but were, was, it's quite um, faithful to the original text, but illuminating. And I came up on chapter nine, and chapter nine is about, uh, it's about concentration, under concentration, and uh, it's about the divine abodes, uh, metta, um, karuna, compassion, um, sympathetic joy, mudita, and upeka, equanimity, those four qualities of heart that he put under the concentration chapter. So that was interesting. And so I thought, well, I've been doing metta all these years, I may as well read the instructions and see what he has to say. And then it turns out that the instructions that he gives uh, on actually doing the practice of wishing to develop this heart of kindness and of love, um, that 
that chapter that he starts out with a, um, a reflection. And the reflection essentially says that before you do any of that, that you sit down and you actually um, reflect. And the reflection is essentially a reflection on the dangers in hatred, the dangers in hatred, and the advantage of patience. Now, I thought, well, patience, I'm a patient. So I must be, I think I've been directed to this, so I better pay attention, right? So the advantages of patience, which I'd never really heard, in, and I'd, uh, <laughs> I'd taught 10 meta retreats over 10 years, and I'd never ever heard that instruction. Now, maybe it had been made, but I'd never heard it. And so I embarked on this um, journey of discovering, first of all, the, disadvant- the, the disadvantages in hatred, the dangers in hatred, and the advantages in, pat- in, in patience. And then I began to practice patience. And this practice of patience, uh, not surprisingly, actually leads to metta without any repetition of any phrase whatsoever in the the heart or in the mind. So this quality of coming back to the center of your being in mindfulness requires a kind of patience. And this patience is actually the quality that we can dial up, that we can call up, that allows us in the midst of whatever the experience is that is arising, whether it's this burning knee or this stiff back, or the thought of this person who we think of as an enemy. That the quality of patience, when asked for, when requested by us internally, begins to bring us back to the center of our being, allows us to open in a spacious way And quite surprisingly to me, the quality of metta is strengthened and arises without any force or strain. So a kind of stability or ease or balance And then what comes is a trust in the midst of all things, of all experiences. And we learn this trust when we sit and when we walk and when 
various experiences arise, whether pleasant or unpleasant or simply neutral. And you sit here and your body hurts with, and you sit with the pain and you include it in your awareness and you include it in your loving kindness. And you sit and there's rapture and pleasant sensations and you include that joy in your meditation. And you sit and there's worry and fear and expectation and then beautiful divine thoughts. And you sit in the center of those and you just stay there in the midst of it. And that's the power of mindfulness. And we develop the strength and strengthen the ability in that way to be present for the full dance of life and death and joy and sorrow and great interest and great ennui with steadiness and with ease. And we discover and awaken to our Buddha nature. And just that discovery automatically cleanses and purifies and entangles, unentangles our being. And at the beginning of the Visuddhimagga, there is a there is a statement and a question. And the statement is very simple. The world is in a tangle. Who will untangle? the tangle. And that would be you. And that would be me. Just our balance in the face of physical pain or grief or loss, or unfulfilled longing, or desire, or hope, or love, or imaginings. Simply our willingness to be present and sit and acknowledge with mindfulness what is there. To keep that kind of equanimity allows all of those forces to move through us and gradually to unknot, to be released and to disentangle the tangle. And it's not a doing, it's creating the space, cleansing, purification. That opening wants to happen in our being. by sitting still and listening, it will open. But we have to be careful, you know, that we don't get too full of ourselves because we also can be quite deluded. So there's this story about a couple from snowy Minnesota. One winter's day, a man left the snow-filled 
streets of snowy Minnesota for a vacation in Florida. His wife was on a business trip and was planning to meet him there the next day. When he reached his hotel, he decided to send his wife a quick email. Unable to find the scrap of paper on which he had written her email address, he did his best to type it from memory. Unfortunately, he missed one letter and his note was directed instead to an elderly woman whose husband had passed away only the day before. When the grieving widow checked her email, she took one look at the monitor, let out a piercing scream, fainted and fell to the floor. At the sound, her family rushed into the room and saw this note on the screen. Dearest wife, just got checked in. Everything prepared for your arrival tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Signed, your eternally loving husband. P.S. Sure is hot down here. (laughs) I thought I would give you that. It was getting a little too serious in here. I'm glad you're laughing. Laugh, laugh, it's okay. (laughs) So we learn through mindfulness our ability to train the mind to see with clear comprehension. And we can train the mind in just the same way we can train the body, the muscles of the body. Having to do physical therapy, I've watched with great interest the progress that is slowly made. And I only realize it when it actually accumulates and seemingly, suddenly, I've leaped into another stage of healing. But as the Buddha said, drop by drop, a bucket gets filled. Our bucket of mindfulness is fuller with each moment of presence. And each time there is an actual moment of presence in which there is um, an actual knowing of what is true and what is happening right now, regardless of its pleasantness or unpleasantness or neutrality that bucket of mindfulness is getting more and more filled up. And we let the heart and the body learn to rest in a kind of timelessness where we're not checking to see what progress we've made every moment, but just noticing when it actually shows itself in a clear way. We inherit as practitioners a great sense of the mystery, great sense of the mystery and the inevitable surprises that come. And it contributes to a greater vision of the stance of life and death. I taught at a Zen monastery um, a few weeks ago 
And I had, I had done some Zen practice many, many years ago, and I hadn't really recalled for a long time what they call the morning gatha and the evening gatha, which is the chants that they do daily, every single day in the monastery. And I was particularly struck by the evening gatha, which I may not remember exactly, but you'll get the sense of it. And it's, it's chanted by the, in this case, the woman who um, led the chanting. She had this beautiful, round, full, booming voice, and so she, which I can't possibly imitate, but I'll give you a sense. <clears throat> she says, Let me respectfully remind you Life and death are of utmost and supreme importance. Strive, strive, strive to awaken. Awaken. Tonight, your days are diminished by one. Do not squander your life. I love that. I do. I love it. I've just been so crazy about it since I taught there. Oh my goodness. Really? Isn't that great? Wouldn't you like somebody to chat that to you every single night before you go to bed? Right? It's great. It's true. It's really true. So what you are doing here in mindfulness and cultivating this heart of kindness is invaluable. No one can buy it from you. They couldn't, they couldn't pay me enough to buy my practice. It's absolutely invaluable because we're, being, we're learning for ourselves how not to squander our lives. How to actually be present in every single moment for every single experience and to bring to it a way in which we actually learn. We learn because we are focused and we are wanting to know, what is this? What is this? Another Zen story that just occurred to me is, um, I sat a three-month retreat. I don't think Bhante was at this one. He may not have been, but he can tell me if he was. A three-month retreat, and we really worked hard, and it was really great and fabulous, and they brought in a Zen person, at the, a Zen uh, master at the end of the retreat because they always brought someone that was our special treat after uh, 90 days of sitting and walking. We got a treat, which was to have a master tell us more. <laughs> and uh, so this master came and he had his, ca- he had his uh, cane. I forget, I've forgotten his name, but he said, um, you've been sitting for three months very good, very good, very good. He said, but only one thing important. 
What is this? That's it. That's the whole practice. What is this? And I thought, you should have told me that 90 days ago. (laughs) (sighs) Would have made life a lot easier had I been told that 90 days ago. But it's true. What is this? What is this experience? That curiosity that allows us to bear the unbearable. That is what those three years of difficulty have taught me, is that my practice developed the muscle of actually bearing the unbearable. Have you developed your muscle for bearing the unbearable? I know we're human and so we all share these experiences whether we're young or we're old. Whatever our particular difficulties are, we have experienced what is unbearable. How is your muscle for bearing it? So we let the heart and body learn to rest in this great timeless aspect of being. And that perspective can only be known through deep stillness and clear seeing. And when we see that, we know that what is a problem and what is a blessing may not be initially evident in the perspective from which we're looking. So knowing that, we can receive it all as an experiment of life and everything as a great blessing. In a Tibetan teaching, they say, to understand spiritual life, you must take the practice of making your sufferings into the path of welcoming your sufferings as the place of your practice. That's asking a lot. But the one great miracle of spiritual practice is a change of heart. We know our human life is not without sorrows and not without difficulties. The earth will probably not be without hungry people, without war. I saw a statistic that was really disturbing, which was that, I forget whether it was billions or trillions, but how much is spent around the world on arms and war, that half a percent of what is spent 
in armaments would actually feed all the hungry people in the world. That made me weep. But can we receive it? Can we receive it? Do we have the strength of heart, the strength of mind to receive it? And it doesn't mean that we don't do everything we can do to shift it, to change it. But first, we must take it all in. And we can't take it all in if we're not present. In this world, in this life of sorrows and beauty and joy and great difficulties, we can discover peace, we can discover kindness, we can discover compassion and equanimity in the very face of our humanity and the struggles of us as people on this earth and the difficulties we face. And as people of color, we know difficulty. We know sorrow is the deepest thing. Our ancestors gave us that as a legacy. And now it's up to us to figure out what to do with that. Is there a shift? Is there a change? Is there a way? And how do we know it? How do we see it? How do we touch it, feel it, do it? So we receive this life, even in the midst of conflict and difficulty. We can receive it as a blessing. And this is the beginning of metta that allows us to extend and expand our heart of kindness. And perhaps even the sorrows are necessary so that we can know the beauty. Just as the depth of night shows us and allows us to know better the light of day. And just as in the difficulties of the world and the struggles of our own loving, kind and compassionate response is a necessary part. Somehow, all of this is supposed to be here. Take that in. It's all supposed to be here. 
So when the body speaks to us in our meditation practice as we sit and walk all day, reminding us of what needs care and attention, to remember it's not just my pain, it's the pain. It's the pain of the world. It's not just my life, it's all of life. And to see how that might afford us the capacity to endure and to open to the difficult, to allow it to be there. And to trust in the possibility of transformation that comes through that opening, through that great heart that sees beyond the personal and the limitation, the personalization of the pain that takes it to be about me and about mine. to take it as a reminder that we are part of a larger community, a larger world to always remember. As Malcolm X X said, that when I to we, I is changed to we, even illness becomes wellness. I'll give you a moment to figure that out. So we make friends with life and we make friends with the pain of life in a way that is forgiving of ourselves and of others and forgiving life itself. That pain is part of the experience and in this learning to bring kindness and gentleness and a care to ourselves and to others when we experience pain in our own lives and when we meet pain in the lives of others. In the book Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse, which is Hermann Hesse's uh, way of seeing the Buddha. At the end, Siddhartha, he calls the Buddha Siddhartha, sits by the river and hears all the voices of the river, the lonely voice, the merry voice, the weeping voice, and the groan of those in pain, the laughter of the wise. And on that day, he hears them all, not separately, but as one great music or one great song. So hear the music as one great open possibility. Let go, make space, make space for it all as you sit and walk and develop this really strong muscle for bearing the life that you have been given, all of its joys, and all of its sorrows. So I'd like to end with a chant of opening, of letting go to make space, the space of the sky that holds all things. And it's a very simple chant, 
just a chant of We'll put a sound to it. and your heart and your mouth and your eyes and everything to the universe. had intended <laughs> to do some uh, questions tonight because we, we had much to do this morning. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.